we now turn to the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 4. And the chapter speaks of the rest, the rest that God has promised to his people and also of the priesthood of Christ, showing that it is in him our sympathetic great high praise that we can obtain that rest. Hebrews chapter 4, I will start from verse 1. Therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear lest any of you seem to have come short of it. For indeed, the gospel was preached to us as well as to them, but the word which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. For we who have believed do enter that rest, as he says. So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has spoken in a certain place of the seventh day in this way. And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this place, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore, it remains that some must enter it. And those to whom it was first preached did not enter because of disobedience. Again, he designates a certain day, saying in David, Today, after such a long time as it has been said, Today, I will hear, today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, then he would not afterward have spoken of another day. There remains therefore a rest for the people of God, for he who has entered his rest has himself also ceased from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and, and intents of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account." Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Word of the Lord. Let us go back in the New Testament to read our sermon's text, Matthew 11.
we can uh, we focus on verse on verses 25 through 30, but we can start from verse 22 to better understand. Then one was brought to him who was demon possessed, blind and mute. And he healed him so that the blind and mute man both spoke and saw. And all the multitudes were amazed and said, Could this be the son of David? Now when the Pharisees heard it, they said, Ah, oh, this, sorry. This fellow does not cast out demons except by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. But Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, Oh, I am sorry, sorry, I have been reading wrong. Sorry. I was reading chapter 12 instead of 11. I will start from verse 25. At that time, Jesus answered and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent and have revealed them to babes. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in your sight. All things have been delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Come to me, all, who, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Dear congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, what is God's testimony about the history of humanity? Scripture says that God created us upright, upright in His image and likeness, but we have sought many schemes. We disobeyed God by listening to the snake, the devil. Since then, Rest has vanished as we became perpetual fugitives running away from God. But our merciful God promised to send the seed of the woman who will crush the head of the snake. To accomplish his promise, God saved Noah from the flood. Then he called from the heathens one descendant of Noah, Abraham. He made of Abraham a nation, Israel. But Israel became enslaved in Egypt. God then intervened again, delivering the Israelites, the church, from Pharaoh's mighty claws. 
The goal was to give them rest in Canaan. To give them a place to be free to worship God without fear, in complete consecration to Him. God then appointed Joshua to conquer Canaan for our ancestors, to conquer Canaan for the church. Unfortunately, once in Canaan, the church betrayed God and turned to idols. God therefore allowed other nations to enslave Israel. But whenever they turned and cried out to God, He delivered them from the oppressors, bringing them back even from Babylon. And when the fullness of times had come, God sent His Son to deliver the nation from their rebellious inclinations. But they kept opposing and persecuting the Christ. After one of the multiple episodes of opposition and persecutions, Jesus pronounced a series of woes on those who disdain God. Then he turned to God, his Father, our Father, in praise. Jesus, as the ultimate Joshua, renewed then God's invitation to his listeners. He graciously invited them to come to him and find a cure for their rebellious tendencies and restlessness. That gracious invitation is the object of our sermon this afternoon. Therefore, it is my privilege to proclaim to you Christ's gospel using the following theme. The Sovereign Lord invites us to find rest in Him. The Sovereign Lord invites us to find rest in Him. Why? Because the Father wills such a rest, because the Son is the only way, the only path to that rest, and third, because the Son uniquely shepherds us into that rest. The rest is the will of the Father, the Son is the, one, is the only way to that rest, and the Son uniquely shepherds us into that rest. Our first point the Father wills such a rest. Scripture says that no one has ever endured such great opposition from sinners as the Lord Jesus Christ. We can sometimes feel very frustrated, disappointed when people oppose us. Imagine how the Lord could have felt. He was misunderstood by all, even people of his family, opposed by the people he made and sustained, the very people he came to give his life to deliver. How does Jesus react in front of such an opposition? Does Jesus break down in self-pity? Does Jesus just quit in anger? No. Jesus praises God the Father. How do we know? The word translated, I thank you, in our text also means, I praise you. Further, verses 25 and 26 are an open, public 
joyful confession of the Father's works. How do we call such public joyful confessions of God's works? We call them praises. Jesus then, when harassed on every side by haters, resorts to praises. Jesus is strong. He's the champion on whose team we all want to be. Now let us examine the, the, the content of his praises. What does Jesus say? He addresses God as his Father, Lord of heaven and earth. He confesses that God the Father is the gracious master of providence who has everything, yes, everything under control, even the fierce opposition that Jesus faces. Jesus thanks the Father. Why? Because the Father has hidden, concealed, closed the knowledge of salvation from the wise and understanding. Now, who are the wise and understanding? In Jesus' times, there were the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, and all the self-righteous Jews. Translated to today, there are the great men of this world, the university people, the powerful, the famous, and all those who think that they are masters of their own destiny. In brief, the wise and understanding are those wise enough in their own eyes to the point of despising the Christ. Thankfully, while God has hidden salvation from the great ones of this world, he has revealed it to some other people. Who are those people? Those are the little children. Who are the little children in our text? In Jesus' time, there were some unsophisticated Galileans, tax collectors, prostitutes, and all those who realized that the Jewish legalist system was bankrupt and that they needed a savior. Translated to today, the little children are those conscientious enough of their spiritual poverty and need for salvation. They do not think, oh, I am good enough or I can save myself. No, they don't think that way. They believe in Jesus' gospel, Jesus' good news. This concealment to some and revealing to others was God's plan. He wanted to ensure that everyone understood that we are saved by grace alone through faith and that this is not a work of our own so that no man may boast. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26 to 29 teaches something similar. There we read, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. 
God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Let us sing together for a moment. Suppose God were calling mainly the PhDs, the millionaires, the superstars. We would have easily concluded that fame and human greatness are requirements for entering the kingdom. But God, our Heavenly Father, is wise. He does not play 3D or 4D chess, but he plays million D chess. In his wisdom, God does not want human pride to cloud his glory. Thus, he calls the slaves, the worthless, the little guys, the deplorables. Not that being a little guy or a deplorable makes someone automatically humble. Many regular and little people are, in fact, also very proud. But when most believers are regular people, deplorable, it is easier to see that God's salvation is a demerited favor, something that we can never earn. Jesus continues his praise in verse 26 saying, Indeed, Father, this is your desire, and it is glorious. Jesus does not give any other explanation except that it is the Father's will. Why does Jesus stop at the Father's will? We are usually unsatisfied with this kind of answer. We don't like to hear, oh, because it is the will of God. Thus, we ask in protest, why is salvation by grace alone? Why is God sovereign in the call to faith? Why has God decided that salvation must be through the atoning sacrifice of his son? Why, why, why? Because it is God's sovereign and gracious goodwill. There is no higher authority Therefore, there cannot be any deeper reason. God is the deepest possible, possible reason. Dear congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, do we rejoice in God's sovereignty like Jesus? When things in life become difficult, when doors that we thought open suddenly appear close. When life becomes uncertain, do we trust God's sovereignty? Do we lay on it? Do we hold on to it? Or do we run away from it? Let us pray that God may renew our minds and affection with his word and spirit to the point that we, like Jesus, start rejoicing in his sovereign will. Only then will we be able to begin to find true rest in God.
in a nutshell, what have we seen so far? Verse 25 and 26 teach us that as the entire world opposes Jesus, he does not fold in self-pity or quit in anger. No, he turns to grateful and joyful praises to the Father. His praise centered around God's gracious, wise, and sovereign will. On the one hand, God calls those who acknowledge their spiritual poverty. On the other hand, God rejects the self-righteous. We also learned that like Christ, we should rejoice in God's sovereign will because embracing God's will is the beginning of our rest in Him. But Jesus' speech continues. Jesus moves suddenly from praising the Father to praising Himself. Why does He do that? What does He say? Is that even godly for someone to praise himself? Let us see the answers to these questions in our second point. The sun is the only way to that rest. Yes, Jesus moves directly from praising the Father to praising himself, saying, All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. We might ask, is that not great pride? No, it is not. For us, human beings, usual, normal human beings, it will be tremendous pride. But Jesus is equal with the Father. Jesus is the, the eternal, natural Son of God, while we are children of God by adoption for Christ's sake, as our catechism confesses. As we continue, do we remember that Jesus referred to the Father as Lord? Do we remember that in verse 25, please, Jesus referred to the Father as Lord of heaven and earth? Jesus there praised the Father's absolute power and authority over creation and providence. Now, Jesus ascribes to himself the same power and authority. Why does Jesus praise himself? Jesus does so to introduce, to introduce his special relationship with the Father. No one knows the Son inside out as the Father does. What do we understand from this? We understand that we cannot know Jesus outside of what the Father says about him. Sure, Jesus is God. As such, we can partly know his greatness and supremacy through his creation, through the things that he has made. But what about his loving kindness, his gospel of salvation? 
We learn those things only in the scriptures, both the Old and the New Testament. In the Old Testament, the Father used the Spirit to announce the Son and His works. The Spirit then gave prophetic utterances, types, and shadows. In the New Testament, the Father sends he sends His Son, Jesus. And the Father confirms Jesus' Sonship through public declarations, such as at His baptism and also at the transfiguration. Therefore, whoever wants to know the Son and enter into His rest must seek to understand Scripture. Whoever rejects the authority of Scripture shows that he knows neither the Son nor his rest. Jesus continues by saying that no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Only Jesus knows the Father inside out. Jesus is the, is the unique image of the Father to us. And just like the Father in his wisdom calls whomsoever he wills, the Son reveals the Father to whomsoever the Son wills. What, do we, what does the Holy Spirit teach us from this statement of Jesus? The Holy Spirit teaches us that Jesus is God the one calling people and giving them rest. Jesus calls and we come, not the reverse. Just as scripture says, we love him because he loved us first or because he first loved us. And again, I will have mercy upon whom I will have mercy and I will have compassion upon whom I will have compassion. Next, the Holy Spirit also teaches us that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Him. Whosoever truly fears God embraces Christ as He is, meaning the God-man, the eternal, natural Son of God. And whosoever does not embrace Christ as the God-man does not fear God, no matter his religiosity. Thus, Muslims and all those who think that Jesus was only a prophet or simply a good man are perishing. It is black and white. There is no middle ground. Embrace Christ as he is and you shall find rest or reject scripture. You reject the scripture's testimony about him and have eternal trouble. In summary, verse 27 teaches that Jesus moves from praising the Father to praising himself. Why? Because he is God. Because he has a special relationship with the Father. And as a result of that special relationship, Jesus is the only way to the Father. Jesus is the one who calls people to himself. And there is no possibility of knowing Jesus 
outside of the scriptures. After praising the Father and praising himself, Jesus extends a powerful invitation. Let us see that invitation in our third and final point. The Son is the best peace. The Son uniquely shepherds us into that rest. One question we did not answer at the beginning is this. Why does Jesus praise God aloud in public? Of course, Jesus is praising to answer the opposition he's facing. But Jesus could have done so in his private prayer time. Thus we understand that the praise is also for the sake of people around him for the sake of his disciples. This public praise has a purpose similar to Jesus' prayer at Lazarus' resurrection in John 11. There Jesus said, Father, I thank you for hearing me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. Thus we understand that the goal of Jesus' praise is also the invitation that he wants to make to his disciples. While others reject Jesus' teaching, Jesus, in great love and compassion, turns to his disciples and invites them to receive eternal life, to receive true rest in him. What does Jesus say? He says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now, who are those who labor and are heavy laden? Those are the children we spoke about in the first one. Those burdened by their sins. The Holy Spirit has opened their eyes and they now realize they cannot save themselves. They see through the pharisaical legalism and know that they need a true Savior. Jesus promises to give them rest. What is that rest? It is freedom from sin's dominion. Freedom from the fear of condemnation. God's deliverance of the church from Egypt was a picture of what Christ would do. That is, deliver the church from the dominion of sin. Joshua's entrance into Canaan was a picture, a shadow of what Christ would do, which is bringing the church back into paradise. Canaan was supposed to be a resting place for God's people. Joshua died without conquering all the land because Joshua was just a man. 
He could not drive idolatry from the genes of God's people. But now, Christ, the real Joshua, calls the church to come to him. He can reprogram our DNA and put an end to sin. His work is perfect and does not expire. It is once for all and without the need for boosters. Jesus has already delivered the church from the dominion of sin. And once he comes back, he will deliver us also from the very presence of sin. Next, Jesus calls his disciples to take his yoke upon them and learn from him. What are the yoke and that what are that yoke and that learning? The yoke and the learning represent the same thing, which is discipleship. Jesus says, Be my disciples. Embrace my gospel in true faith, and I will save you. Why should we, why should people embrace Jesus' gospel? Because of his character. Because of who he is. He is gentle and lowly in heart. What does this mean? It means that Jesus is mild, humble, compassionate, and able to sympathize with our weaknesses, as we read toward the end of Hebrews chapter 4. Despite his exalted position, he accepted to take our flesh upon himself in order to experience our plight and become our merciful great high praise. Jesus is not a slave driver like Pharaoh, like the Jewish religious leaders, even like our idols. He is a kind shepherd who leads us in green pastures, beside still waters, and restores our souls. Jesus is the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. As someone says, Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath to make our cup of blessing overflow. In verse 30, Jesus calls the church to come to him because his yoke is easy and his burden is light. Again here, burden is and yoke are parallel to burden and learning. Burden and yoke represent also the same thing, which is discipleship. To be a disciple of Jesus, we know it's an impossible task because Jesus requires perfection. Jesus says in the gospel, you therefore must be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. How then can Jesus' yoke be easy and his burden light? Jesus laid down his life to fulfill those requirements for us. All those who truly embrace Jesus become united to him. And as a result, God puts Jesus' merit to their account. God gives them Jesus' spirit, who continuously works in their heart with the word. As a result of the spirit's work, peace, rest, and assurance of salvation replace 
the fear of condemnation. The knowledge of forgiveness replaces the burden of guilt and sin. And slavery to righteousness replaces slavery to sin. Yes, Jesus, the Christ, accomplished for us the perfect works that we could never accomplish. And that's why we must hearken his invitation. And that's why his yoke is easy and his burden light. Conclusion. What is the sum, the summary of what the Holy Spirit teaches this of what the Holy Spirit teaches us this afternoon. The Holy Spirit reminds us of Christ's invitation to turn to him for salvation, for true rest. Christ's invitation has three sections. In the first section, Christ Jesus rejoices at the great wisdom of the Father in sovereignly calling to him the deplorable, those that he has enabled to be conscientious of their spiritual poverty. In the second section, Jesus presents himself as the only one who can make us know the Father in detail. From such a presentation, we learned that true religion, the true fear of God, is always centered on the Scripture's testimony about Christ. Finally, in the third section, we saw that Christ uniquely shepherded us into that rest, that he is the one who laid down his life for us to make his yoke easy and his burden light. We saw that Christ is the best possible shepherd. Now, I would like to close by rehearsing to us Jesus' invitation. Do we realize how spiritually poor we are? Do we feel the burden of guilt because of the multitude of our transgressions? Have we come to know that it is vain to try to please God in our own strength? If that's the case, then let us turn to Christ. Let us turn to the perfect shepherd. Let us pray to him and ask him to give us that true rest that he promised. He is our only hope and in his infinite mercy and compassion, Jesus will never cast away anyone who comes to him in true faith. Amen.